Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote Kia ora and welcome. I want to invite you at the start of this episode to think of any collaborative partnerships or collaborative governance groups or collaborative working groups that you're part of. And I bet you're part of some because there are hundreds, probably thousands of these groups operating just in New Zealand alone. Just in the last week or two, I've been talking about the Hutt Valley Governance Group, uh, the Top of the South Impact Forum, Safe in the South, the Waikato Wellbeing Project Governance Group, Marlborough Smart and Connected. There are all these groups that exist where you're getting a diverse group of people around the table to make some progress on a shared challenge. And the idea is you coordinate your activities, you share information, resources, power, you address systemic barriers together, that one plus one is going to equal three. And often these groups start with a hiss and a roar and this promise of doing things innovatively, but before long kind of falls into these long meetings where you each report on your own individual and organizational work and basically try to demonstrate how important you are. Well, today's guest is Henry Pavy, who has made a career out of turning around average partnership groups into ones that have a real impact. I found it really affirming in our conversation to realize that the challenges that Henry is seeing in the UK are pretty much the same challenges that we are seeing with these kind of partnerships here in New Zealand. Often these partnership ways of working, we turn to them when the challenges we're facing are volatile, they're uncertain, they're continually changing, they're complex, and yet we don't resource this way of working appropriately. Henry's got some good answers as to what is needed. He talks about the engine room, or what sometimes people call the backbone, that is needed to make these things work. You can't just get people in the room and hope that it's all going to work out nicely. There's a lot of nudging, prompting that is required in the background. Henry is really strong on the importance of relationships and trust building, and that this takes time. One thing Henry talked about that really struck a chord with me was that often it takes somebody standing up and having the courage to say, I think we need to do this collaborative partnership better. I think we need to have a refresh. Because often when we're in the midst of this, we don't like to admit that we're perhaps not doing this collaboration thing very well. So my hope for today's episode is that it might inspire you to be the brave person that stands up in your group, whatever it is, and says, I think we need a refresh. I think we need to reinvigorate this group. So please welcome to the show, Henry Pavy. Well, I am very pleased to welcome to the podcast, Henry Pavy. Kia ora, Henry, and welcome. Hi there. 
Hi, Paul. How's things? Things are very good. And you're coming to us all the way over from the UK and it's, I don't even know, 10, 11, 12 at night your time. So very much yeah. appreciate you tuning in. No worries. It's 10 o'clock at night. It's pitch black outside. but it's... Yeah. And I think that's appropriate because when we first met, I think it was about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, we ran a collaborate virtually like a pro session about a year and a half ago in the first lockdown. And this chap from the UK popped up into the session where everyone else was from New Zealand. And I learned so much from following up with you afterwards, reading your articles and seeing what you're posting. So really pleased to have you here to share a little bit about partnership working. And, and likewise, it's good to learn from you guys as well. Before we kind of get into that, Henry, let's introduce you to people a little bit. And I'd like to take you right back to where you first started your career, because you had a first phase working in the military. And I'm really interested, what attracted you to that career path? I left school at 16, didn't do very well at school, mm. and, but I always wanted to be a soldier. And so at the centre age of 17 and 40s, I went into the army and did 13 years regular service, left at 30, was a sergeant when I left. Was that something in your blood or upbringing? <laughs> or? I, don't I think maybe it was a glossy brochures and a nice <laughs> uniform. And the sense of travel and getting around the place. Yeah. And, and my dad works in an office and he always said, oh, don't worry, son, if you defend now, you could always work in the office with me and thought of <laughs> At the age of 17, being in an office, just scared the living devil out of me. Travel around a lot, even got down to New Zealand, actually. I spent a while in North Ireland, in Papakura camp, in between Rotorua and Auckland. Left the army at 30. I got married, and I could have stayed in until I was 40. I'd done 10 years to go. I wanted to do a full career. I was a sergeant, senior NCO. But I got back to the nurse. We bought our own house, and I became quite civilianized. And... <laughs> I think it was quite unheard of as a sergeant leaving when they didn't have to leave. But I felt actually if I'd left the army at 30 and was young enough to start the same career, mm. I'd seen a lot of 40 year olds having to leave and they were having to find anything they'd managed to leave school, mm. having to find somewhere to live because they were living in an army corps, having mm. to find uh, schools with the kids, all the rest of it, real midlife crisis stuff. Mm. So I, I stepped down to Sydney Street at the age of 30. And yeah, I think it's quite interesting because I'll probably reflect on my army career as we go on in these various discussions this yeah. evening. My main train was in the artillery and I was a communication sergeant. So basically, I bought doing gunfire and we sort of did radio communications, satellite communications, all that sort of stuff. I was a heavy goods class one driver, so I could drive a big articulated truck. But I had done, whilst I was in the forces, I'd done a diploma in training management. Right. And that sort of got me quite interested into sort of this training and development and organization development type stuff. Left the army, I spent a little bit of a while doing temporary heavy goods driving and then got a job in, in local government and <laughs> just bizarrely. Just really embracing the civilian lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. So bizarrely, <laughs> my guy who didn't want to wear a suit at the age of 30, well, I was wearing a suit, but you know, I'd had my, my 13 years of fun and crawling around the ground. So you've gone from. This military career, traveling around the world, really hands-on, and now you've got the house, you've got a, a lovely wife, you've got the civilian career. Was there a culture shock for you there? Oh, huge. And it's, it's, yeah. it's still there now. I don't know whether you've actually interviewed or come across other ex-military people in your life and all the rest of it. One is the transition, and you don't really know all those sort of soft skills and transferable skills and useful skills. You don't recognize it. Mm. So 
a lot of ex-service personnel actually struggle when they go in the city streets because you walk away from a very structured environment mm. where you know your place, you know your role, and you know your position, and you know if you're a good boy or girl and you can do things well and you publish your career courses and you get promoted. There's, mm. there's a career path ahead of you. Mm. And of course, when you step out on the city street, there's no career path. You're on your own. You mm. know, and finding your way in the world and understanding who you are and, and all the I belong to, you know, a group of ex-squadies we meet up every year. <laughs> Some guys have really, really struggled in the outside world. Funny you mentioned that because we've been working with a client recently who's okay. in local government. It's his first job out of a military career. And one thing I noticed with him is there's so many great terms from the army that he started to bring in. Like already here you say civvy street and um, squaddies. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot yeah. of that that seems to come in. Then there's some that they can't say on this podcast because it's been rude and all the rest of it. Yeah, I, yeah. I imagine there's some similarities though. I mean, local government in particular here in New Zealand anyway, it's still quite hierarchical and you're driven by you know, a purpose that's bigger than yourself, which is kind of shared between the army and local government, I would have thought. What I found interesting about local when I first stepped into it, because it was transitioning from forces into symmetry. I, th I think in the forces, we just sort of got things done and mm. you know, there's a job that needed doing, we just do it. I think what surprised me at first, there did seem to be a lot of talking and a lot of debating <laughs> and you know, how should we do this and why should we do this and how she's unfair because I did it last time and somebody else should do it. I suppose the other big thing for me was the loyalty to your organisation. Mm. So in the forces, you're really quite loyal to your unit and what else. Yeah. Where in semi-streets, to most people, it's just a job. The, mm. the loyalty to the council or the company is actually quite hard to define. Mm. Like, like, so I fell into local government and it's quite bizarre. So I fell into Southampton City Council. At the time, it's around 10,000 employees. Mm. Uh, transitioning, we were becoming what was called a unitary authority, which was basically an all-purpose authority that did you know, everything from refuse collection right through to running schools and central mm. services strategic planning and housing provision and all this sort of stuff. Like for people listening in New Zealand, the scale is quite a lot larger. Yeah. Our council here in Nelson is probably, I don't know, three or 400 employees. Auckland really? council, our biggest, I think is maybe four or 5,000 employees. We had to, as a city, put a case to the government to become this, what they call the unity authority, which is the sort of super right. council. So within two years of meeting the forces, I was the deputy program manager for what we called unity status. So one putting the, the bid together to become a super council and then win the case. And then when we won the case, we had to transfer five and a half thousand staff plus their services from what we had. It was an upper tier authority over the city of Southampton and mm. it was swept away from us. Now that was quite weird because I was still, I was sent up to parliament to go and talk to members of parliament about what we were doing. And half of them, I didn't even know what I was talking about. I was just making it up as a long, you know. I don't know whether it was the forces, because I'm, I'm a bit of an organizer. And I think that will mm. be this podcast to go along. <laughs> but that sort of organization and structure and trying to get, you know, best of the deep sort of come together and, you know, create mm. something better. That basically helped develop the, the new council. Then I spent, you know, a number of years in a, what we call a change agent role work with a direct service arm. So was, that was what we used to call the blue collar services. So okay. refuge, street cleansing, building maintenance, highways, catering, all the rest of it. Mm. Services that had to compete against the private sector because we had a something called compulsory misgendering. And I was trying to bring in customer service training and 
joy the training skills and all the rest. And I was doing training with refuse crews at like five o'clock in the morning on customer service stuff and driving standards. Which with the family life, yeah, yeah. But you obviously didn't wear a suit in front. Of you. you know, you just yeah. you, you dressed appropriately. Yeah. But I did that for a couple of few years. Then I got picked up by our chief executive and told we have been instructed to pull together a strategic partnership uh-huh. with the city of Southampton. So one of 88 areas actually sort of lasered on by the government because of multiple deprivation disadvantage. Right. And we were told to establish a local strategic partnership, as it was called, LSP, local strategic partnership, which was all about trying to improve the economic, social, and environmental performance and outcomes across the city. Mm. working through a strategic partnership. So the strategic partnership was pulled together in representatives from all the city, you know, the public sector agencies, you know, the police and the mm. fire and the, the hospitals and the health, community and voluntary sector representatives from the voluntary sector mm. and community and then you also had private sector representatives from the number of big businesses and the Chamber of Commerce and Wesley. And so we had government inspectors all crawling all over us, making sure we were quotes doing it right, but nobody knew how to do this stuff. <laughs> and my first strategic policy we pulled together, we had 36 people around the table. Right. 36. All the key yeah. leaders across the city. And my chief executive picked me up from saying, I want you to pull this thing together. Mm. Now, I'd done an MBA by then. So for the kid who left school with no qualification, I then did a postgraduate MBA when I left the army. And so I pulled together this strategic partnership. And I thought, this is brilliant. What I'm going to do now is I'm getting the great and the good and the powerful people in this city. And I'm going to get them under the rule. And then you know what? I'm going to sit back and I'm just going to watch the magic happen. <laughs> I'm just going to watch the energy explode. <laughs> The idea, the innovation, <laughs> over the top, this is our city, we're going to make it better. And what I had was 36 people looked to me for leadership. Yeah. 36 chief executives and vice to universities and okay. real what, we, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. Henry, tell us what to do. You know, it's mm. a bit weird. I quickly rattled through the final bit of my career. So I did that for 10 years at Southampton City Council. Mm. So I was reporting direct to the chief executive and the leader of the council, you know, the, the lead politician. My role expanded over time, so I was responsible for ensuring all the partnerships that the council was involved in. Were they adding value? Were we maximizing our partnership working for the benefit of the city? Yeah, well. So I had this remit that I could go to the health partnership or go to the economic development partnership or, or whatever, mm. because I'm an observer. I could just go to the observatory. Wow. Yeah. And I tried to do some partnership demos and I was trying to mainstream this partnership working in the corporate democratic structures, trying to get our senior managers to be more engaged in all this mm. stuff, mm. get our councillors to be more engaged in this stuff. Everybody saw there's a, a cost and a bureaucracy and yeah. all it takes to do stuff. But they all recognised it was important. Maybe, maybe if someone else could do it, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but suddenly I said, I did that for 10 years and we were constantly being restructured in the council, always, every mm. year, like all girls. There's less money. You look for more agencies. Mm. I was always left alone. <laughs> I was always left alone in every restructure, which either meant I was doing a really, really fantastic job <laughs> or nobody understood what I did and therefore best leave me alone. Yeah. I think it was the latter. I think maybe, maybe a bit of both. Maybe a bit of both. 
<laughs> rather than I was at a fantastic job. But yeah, we had some good stuff. We got lots of funding through uh, from various governments, departments over the years because of the strength of our partnership working. We used to get assessed every year. We, we got a green rating. We were in the top 25% of the high-performing partnerships in the country and strategic partnerships. And then we had austerity in 2010, you know, the, the global crash. Mm. Money got really tight. Massive redundancy programs coming along. They wanted to get rid of 25% of the mansion overhead. So I'd had my army career. I'd had a left gun career, so I, I stuck on my hand and I took redundancy. And I went out on my own in, in, in 2012. And since 2012, I've been working for myself as a consultant, basically doing collective transformation and partnership working. Henry, what an awesome career story. I love how there's just random element that pop up that completely changed the trajectory for you. This We're picking you up when we're popping you in here and it sets you on this completely different path. I mean, there's a couple of things I'm really interested in there. Those local strategic partnerships that you mentioned, and then you also said, oh, you know, we had health partnerships, we had economic development partnerships, so on and so on. What was the connections between all of those? So the local strategic partnership was, whose role was to be strategic and we ensure that all the major players with the council, we're working together towards a shared vision mm. and would line their organizations to do you know, their bid towards that, delivering their shared vision. Mm. We then had a number of thematic partnerships, so health partnership, an economic development partnership, a cultural partnership, a housing partnership, we had all sorts of things. And they were linked into the framework. Right. This was quite interesting because I don't think it happened before. In a corporate center, you sit there and you know all the bits of the organization, mm. who's who, what's what, and where it all fits together. In a citywide partnership context, the strategic partnership would provide that corporate center. And then you've got your, your functions in your departments, which would then all be in the budget context, your thematic partnerships. Mm. It's interesting that you're almost thinking of this partnership structure as an organization. And I think can be quite helpful because often what I see is people go, oh yeah, we'll, we'll quickly set up a partnership and, and off we go. But actually there's so much structure and support in behind it that is helpful. What's your take on that? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting because one of the things I did when I was in Southampton was I produced a, I called it the cosmos. I actually produced a, a map of the partnership networks. Yeah. So starting with the local strategic partnership in the center or the Southampton partnership, we called it. Mm. We then mapped out through to the various thematic partnerships. From then we then mapped out all the various subgroups and mm. things. And then we identified other partnerships that weren't linked in. Mm. But this map, I'd love to show it to you. I mean, it was like scary. It was really scary because it was, it was like a cosmos. You look up the stars and see what then nobody had realized the scale and the complexity of all this bunch of work. We've done yeah. the same exercise here locally, far smaller scale, you know, in our region, Nelson Tasman, 80,000 people, you know, three of us who did this, we saw, oh, there's about 30 partnerships that we were aware of. And yeah. almost all of those were disconnected from each other. So, you know, really interesting to hear from you that there is at least some connection in your situation. Yeah. And I had a support officer work with me for a while and you see a graduate intern and things like that. And 
we send a, a, a website, like everybody has a website, but we, mm. we made this Berkshire website. And so what we tried to do is make that the central place to find out about Berkshire work in the city. Mm. So you'd have the organogram type thing and you could click on any bubble housing Berkshire process and you could click on there and you drop it to a page. And then you can find out the raw core information of the function. The mm. housing function is responsible for that. It meets on this, this cycle. Here's some minutes and stuff it does. Here's his terms of reference. Here's his membership for further information contact. Yeah. So we try to almost come up with a directory of partnerships because it's the classic left hand rightism. Yes. Probably same as over there, but I've heard people say, oh, I was at another partnership meeting just the other week and we were discussing the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And you say, well, actually, who owns this lot of partnerships? Who has the overview? Who tries to look at it as a tangible system? And that's where part of my work today is quite interesting because nobody owns the system. Yeah. Where that gets interesting for me as well as what's the public accountability around how these partnerships are working. There's a question that came up here recently with people looking around and going, there's so many different partnership things going on. Some of them have got budget, some of them don't, some of them have got strategic senior leaders, some of them are more operational people. But for members of the public, it's really hard to know what they are, why they exist, what their remit is, and to then be able to participate in any way or hold those groups accountable in any way. What, what have you sort of learned about what's helpful for that? That's such a difficult question because <laughs> the, the whole thing about quotes, accountability and transparency is in, in the public government. You've got that tension as well as the same time, you're actually trying to get a very diverse group of partners to work together. Yeah. If this group of diverse partners who, yes, and they've all got differences in opinion and all the rest of it, I've come across various mm. partnerships who YouTube their meetings. You know, all their meetings are recorded in front of YouTube. And I've got to be honest with you, the problem is people modify their behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't get the cut and thrust and the debate and the challenge because when it's in the glare of cameras, mm. people modify their behaviors. And especially if there's local media stalking, yeah. people won't say, well, they film. So you actually mm. brought very senior, very powerful people together for <laughs> a bit of a pointless exercise. And then you've hamstrung them by making them feel nervous about what they say and yeah, 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 I get that. So, okay. But a lot of the partnerships I work with, yeah, they keep, you know, quite right and say, you know, we need to tell the public what we're doing and all the rest. And you say, yeah, that's why you can do that through other PR and communication yeah. tools and mechanisms. You can write executive summaries, you can produce newsletters. When there's an issue that you want public engagement on, you can set up public engagement events and all the rest. But to have something fixed that says every single one of our meetings is going to be cameras and local mm. media is, I think you're on a highly stuffing person. <laughs> you, you wouldn't do it in a corporate structure. No. You wouldn't, you wouldn't get a senior management team of, of a council having a serious debate about budget cuts and services mm. and the rest of it in the glare of the local media and the local community. No, no. And you wouldn't videotape your governance meeting of your community organization no. and share that with no. the staff. No. It's about getting the balance right. And, a lot of the partnerships I've, I've supported over the last nine years, they keep saying to them, this is all about getting the right people around the right tables, looking at the right issues at the right time, and then disband. So it's more of a task and finish type approach to a lot mm. of instances. But if you've got the relationships within your geographic area, in my case, yeah, my city, 
you've got relationships with, then you can work with it rather than having fixed things, fixed structures and fixed problems. Yes. With a fixed number of people around the table that meet every month and something mm. like that. Okay, so I'm hearing from you about the importance of adaptability and holding these things lightly. How mm. do you encourage that when you're working in a bureaucratic environment where people are used to structure, certainty, and an ongoing kind of reporting and, and that sort of way of working? I trod a very fine line. So when I was doing this partnership stuff, I tried to be the friend of the partners and build their trust and support and their confidence in me, mm. but not to be perceived as a stooge of the council. Right. And that's a very fine line and a very yeah. difficult one because mm. some of our partners will be quite open and honest with me, mm. say things to me about my own organization. Yeah. So, yeah. Nobody was my organization. I'm doing 1% perfectly punch working. Mm. Yet, for me to then go back into my organization and say to my chief executive or my leader of the council, do you realize actually some of the funds are saying this, uh, you know, could be a bit career limiting. Yeah. Because it's hierarchical and bureaucratic. You have a role and you have a position, you have a status in the structure in the organization. Mm. Which means also actually that anybody who owns hundred pounds more than you knows more about your job than you do. And that's always been the way. The last nine years since I've been out on my own in the consultancy world, I talk a lot to senior leaders and chief executives and leaders and councils and everything, and they tend to listen. Mm. I suppose in a way, because they're paying for me and my advice, <laughs> but I'm not shackled by their rules and the bureaucracy. If I knew what I know about partnership working when I was a council officer, I think we could have done a lot more, a lot better stuff. Yeah. I had no training in partnership management, mm. no training whatsoever. I just did stuff, <laughs> made it work. Nine years out of my own, I've absolutely immersed myself in the world of policy work. You know, I mean, I've done professional qualifications, I've got all sorts of books and literature. So mm. that's where you come over as a bit of an expert. And that allows you to be able to set things up differently from the start. Yeah. You're saying, yeah. in my but experience, from my training, yeah. this is what works. Yeah. And you're saying adaptability and flexibility is really important, really important to hold these things lightly. But you're working with these organizations that are used to long-term planning and quite detailed accountability structures. So how yeah. does that fit together? A lot, of, a lot of my work is with place-making partnerships. So these are the ones that are doing like town center regeneration programs or massive new, what we call urban extensions, or we've got a lot of fix. Ministry of Defense, you know, army, formal army barracks have been okay. let go. It's been converted into homes and schools wow. and, you know, rest of it. These are what I call long-term value-creating relationships. So these partnerships are going to be together for at least 10 years to build mm. a new town of extension of 5,000 new homes, for instance. So these are short-term, quick fix things. These partners are going to be together for 10 years. Mm. It's all about that co-creation stuff. So co-creating that shared vision, that's the skin in the game, not the council's vision, it's just mm. co-creating shared vision. Co-creating the governance structure and, and the rules working together mm. and the accountability policy. When I work with partnerships to do what I call house rules. <laughs> so like, and the house rules are really, it's not a constitution. It's what are the behaviors that you expect of your partners around the table mm. and how do you expect your meetings 
to be organized and managed. Mm. And when you get a set of co-created health rooms, so it could be simple things like no mobile phones, everybody reads the stuff in advance, mm. respect the diverse opinions, mm. give people their time, all the rest of it. Yeah. Even saying our meetings need to be action orientated, action orientated, accelerated delivery, collaborative problem solving, seizing new opportunities. Yeah. You know, we don't yeah. want meetings, we just endless drudge and bureaucracy. We have to maximize that valuable together time. When you can't create those rules, they are those partners' rules. And then it's very difficult for someone not to hear to them because they've co-created them. Yeah. So if we say, we agree to respond to email requests within three working days, mm. things like that, then it becomes a little bit enforceable because it's co-created. So uh, how do you use those as you go through? Do you refer to them every meeting? What I do is on any meeting, any agenda papers, the shared vision statement sits mm. at the top of every single agenda. Mm. So you don't lose sight of your shared vision. And then every discussion you, you have, you say, is this discussion helping us to deliver that shared vision? Because most shared visions, you do them and then you forget them. Yeah. 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 That should be central also. And then things like the house rules, accountability policy, how will you deal with conflict, all the rest of it. They're normally attached to all the agenda papers. So in case people forget. Mm. It's just a useful reminder, useful checker. I see other places that actually print them out and get them mm. laminated and stick them on walls. But it's about getting the partners to agree how they want to work together mm. and then understanding the governance behind each partner and their accountability and their performance frames and then all that sort of stuff. So if the council says, well, for us to make a decision on this, we've got to take it back through cabinet, mm. the partners understand. So Henry, I'm getting the sense from you of, of the structure that you're creating at the start and the care and attention you're giving to the culture of the group. What about relationship building? And here I'm meaning I'm one person around the table with 36 people. I need to actually know all of those other 35 people and, and start to trust them. What do you do to build that? Your credibility as the person that holds it all together, the partnership manager, all these strategic partnerships, you come together. Say once, once a month, mm. for two or three hours, you know, pre-COVID and now we're coming out of COVID year, they'll sit around the table and they'll do stuff. And when they're doing stuff, they'll say, we're the XYZ partnership. We're doing fantastic stuff. Mm. Then they bomb burst out, leave the meeting and they all default back into their organizational silos. Yeah. Yep. And so the chief executive of the council left that meeting, the function with the council. I've got a problem, you know, I've got a number of customer complaints where we're going to go to the mail. The chief executive of the health authority was, oh, bed blocking. Oh, that's more important. I've got to go and sort of bed blocking. Yeah. So naturally they default back to their organization heads rather than their partnership. So the role of the partnership team of bunch of manager, I call it the engine room. And it's one of the learning points which we'll come on to in a while is that engine room capacity to make those partnerships work is absolutely critical. I've seen senior partnerships trying to make things happen and they've got a, a committee clerk for a day a week mm. to pull some papers together for them. Mm. Who's doing all the nudging mm. and the pushing and the cajoling and the reminding yeah. and the keeping things on target and on track. So the next time partners meet, you can say, yeah, we've done that. We've done this. We've done this. Mm. So that's a, a key puzzle role without becoming somebody who just agitates people and mm. a nag. There's a very fine line. If you were. Say, for instance, a performance manager in a council, you hassle service departments for performance information, begin performance returns, because it has to go back upstairs on a clunky basis to be reported. 
So people will respond to you yeah. because you're not the same organization. I'm not, but they do it. Yeah. <laughs> With partners, it's slightly different because I can nudge, push, mm. gently remind, pick up a phone, go and see them, have a coffee with them, but they're not accountable to me. Yeah. So your only leverage is goodwill and goodwill. the relationship yeah. that you've got with There's three main learning points I've got at the moment, but one of them is the, that engine will capacity to make these promises work. It also looks in as a whole system. So one of the things people have said, and it's quite true, is the chair of the partnership, yeah, he or she is responsible for ensuring that it functions effectively and all that. No, they don't, because invariably they also have a day job. Mm. But when the chair of the partnership is talking at a partnership meeting, they're watching how people react to what they say and then how they respond. And then if someone responds in a slight way and says, well, actually, chair, I don't think that's quite right, we should do that. And they're not looking above and over the chair isn't they're part of the conversation yeah this is quite an interesting thing i've come across loads of partnership managers or glorified administrators quite honestly mm. they're not partnership managers they just service meetings yeah but it's actually understanding looking above and saying how is this system working mm -hmm. looking at the dynamics the body language all that sort of stuff all those non-world cues, you know, yeah. a lot of people submitting things on time and say constant deadlines being missed. Are they constantly deputies being sent because people are losing interest? You start to pick all this up mm. if, you, if you know what you're looking for. So you're looking underneath to see what are the patterns, the trends over time, yeah. and therefore what might be the mindsets underneath that, that are, are driving people away from the partnership or, yeah. or whatever it might be. One thing that I've noticed is partnerships often start with a hiss and a roar. People go, they get really excited. This is the one that is going to make all the difference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can see you smiling there because you've seen it, yeah. right? And maybe you get a quick win or two under the board. And then after a year or so, it's hard and there's lots to do. And it just starts to fizzle out a little bit. What do you do to help turn around a partnership in that situation? Right. So it's one of my learning points is actually very few partnerships actually take time out to review themselves. So every client I work for, I always start with what we call a baseline assessment. I go to the partnership, I pick stuff up. People come in and say, you know what, Henry, I'm being a bit brave here, but this isn't working. Mm. It's just not working. You know, can you have a look? You observe meetings and you pick up all the various agendas and minutes and you start to read through all that stuff. I have a questionnaire where we get some quantitative scoring around trust and relationship type yeah. indicators. Also do a lot of one-to-one -one follow -up phone calls with every single partner. And that's like being an agony uncle. It's amazing. <laughs> when people sit around and tell you, we're so polite. Mm. Nobody will actually say, I don't think we're working very well together. Yeah. When an independent party of me comes up. Oof, say, the floodgates open. Yeah. Then the floodgates open. Yeah. And then what I do is I uh, get all these qualitative type data, yeah. you've got scoring, and I bring them all together and I present it. And I say, every single number that I'm going to show you has come from you around the table. Yeah. Every single comment, anonymized, of course, has come from you around the table. Mm. None of this has come from me. Mm. This is where you are at today. Yeah. And so one of the bunches I worked with, it, it was a big place-making partnership, they were really struggling. So the, the indicator scores, there's 12 of them, five is the highest and obviously naught is the lowest. <laughs> the highest score 
was 2.3 and the lowest score was 0.2. Wow. So they weren't even middle of the road. Yeah. And then the individual responses, things like, you know, you know, I don't trust Palmer Ricks because, you know, da, 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 yes. and, you know, you know, the way we're meeting is terrible. And then when you present that stuff, mm. it's quite interesting because you get the tumbleweed moment. Yeah. The rolling tumbleweed, people look at you and nobody wants to say anything. Yeah. And it always happens. You know, I found this. You get a, a counselor, usually a counselor, usually quite senior. Mm. I'll say to you, no, I don't recognize that. I don't recognize it at all. We have fantastic relationships in this partnership. No, I think you've made this up. I don't know why we bother getting consultants in. I think you've made this up. You, know, you have fantastic relationships. And I say, thank you, counselor. Does anybody else have a view? And then you'll eventually get to one person say, I recognize this. And somebody else will say, yeah, so do I. Because mm. most partnerships don't quite know where they're at. Yeah. What does partnership excellence look like to you all? You could do that all the partnerships be dynamic and we could be lasered on, you know, some, some key actions and we would maximize our time together and we wouldn't deal with the bureaucracy and drudge. And then you can say, right, okay, so this is your current state. This is your ideal future state where you want to go as a partnership. Mm. Right. Now let's start putting all the bits and pieces in, into play mm. to help you move from your current state to your ideal future state. It could be the governance framework. It could be performance management framework. It could be what is the strategy? What is the plan that you're delivering on? It could be who's doing the communications. It could be about roles. It could be about all sorts of stuff. But the most important thing is you have to build in a, a regular review process and you wouldn't run an organization without doing some sort of organizational development review every so often. Yeah. 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 So I don't know it's like over there here in the UK, we spend millions on organizational development stuff. Yep. Yeah. Management development programs, service reviews to make the organization more efficient, more effective and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Partnership development, I would suggest the investment is always nil. Yeah. It's somebody else's problem. It's really interesting. Yeah. Hey, thanks Henry for, for sharing that in detail. That's, you've painted a really vivid picture. I, I just yeah. was imagining myself sitting around that table in that awkward moment where everyone's going, oh, the truth is oh. out. <laughs> what do we do now? And, and I really get that message from you of structure and a sort of a rhythm to the partnership. We're at this stage. Now we need to review. Now we're at this stage. It's, it's funny because you want to work in a collaborative way. Collaborative way is about being agile and water. And you do need a great deal of agility, but to have agility, you also got to have structure. Yeah. You have to have organization and you're going to have discipline. Mm. And maybe going all the way back to my army career, some of those things I learned when I was in the forces have come to play because if you don't give these partnerships structure, organization and discipline, mm. then they just become a bit of a free from all and then things aren't done or things are missed or people don't turn up and then the whole thing gets dumbed down. So if partners are committed to work together, get them to agree the way they want to work together and then you implement the structure, the organization and discipline to hold them to account for how they're mm. going to work together. Yeah. Well, structure helps us to have more spontaneity and creativity because otherwise there's no boundaries, then you just don't know what's the field that you're playing on. So yeah, that makes sense to me. Well, look, Henry, I'm aware of our time, but there's one final thing I'd love to ask you because you mentioned before there's that counselor who's going, oh no, everything's fine here. 
well, what are you talking about? We have good trust. We have good relationships. And I've seen that happen in partnerships that I've observed where I'm sitting there going, this is not operating well. They're not talking about the real issues here and they're talking over each other. And I've spoken to people about the partnership and asked them what, how they think it's going. And they say, oh, it's, yeah, it's working really well. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on where people almost don't quite understand the full potential of what a good partnership looks like? How do you help them to realize what that even is? The impact system that I use, which is something I developed so I is imagine, imagine your ideal punch of future state. M is measure, where are you today? Mm. Your current state. P is what's your purpose? What are you actually, you know, what is the purpose of partnership? And there's a number of things underpinning that. A is about alignment. How do we ensure that everything is aligned to what you're doing? C is about commitment. What are you actually delivering with? Mm. You know, and what are you committed to doing? And T is, I call it transformation. So that's about how do you build that partnership culture? Mm. Yeah. When you have the discussions about ideal future states, and you facilitate the discussions very well, and you say, there's no right or wrong here. Every partnership is different mm. because it's the human beings around the table that make it different. <laughs> For instance, you could get two city center regeneration partnerships. Mm. They both have the same challenges to tackle. Yeah. But the way they tackle it, because of the personality around the table, each partnership is different. Yeah. yeah. You create the right environment, you're doing a bit of a workshop in time stuff. And, and then, you know, and somebody who thinks they've got the right answer suddenly realizes actually people around the table are thinking slightly different. Mm. So are they all wrong? And I'm wrong. It's the council of princes in this case, mm. or actually maybe am I wrong and they're mm. right? So it's about just that dialogue. You know? mm. So I just wanted to summarize my three big learning points is one of the questions you've asked. One, in practically all the partnerships I've come across, there's no systematic partnership development approach. It, it feels a bit ad hoc. Yep. feels a bit ad hoc. And because using your analogy, New Zealand's analogy of backbone organization, yeah. backbone organization is usually the council in vast majority of cases. And therefore, because the council works in a certain way, the partnership always mirrors the yeah. way the council does meetings and yeah. does reports and the rest of it. That's not the council's fault. That is not the council's fault. And I think a lot of councils I've worked with, they felt a little bit, you know, I'm going to mm. give them grief. And I said, no, no, no. You developed this as a mirror image of how you work mm. because you haven't really had that opportunity with the discussion or the independent mm. facilitation to say, is there a different way we can work together? The number two second failing is the engine rule, the mm. partnership management capability, which I've touched on quite a bit here. Yeah. And the third one, and it's a really difficult one. It's what I call emotional attachment. <laughs> How many people around that table are really emotionally attached oh. to their <laughs> partnership? Not to what the partnership is seeking to deliver, the mm. project and the outcomes, but to the partnership. How many people walk away from that table and go back to their management teams, back to their own ranches, back to their community? You know what? I'm what X, Y, Z partnership is. Bloody yeah. fantastic. We're doing some good stuff. That comes back to how you communicate the work of a partnership, you know, shared messages, shared communication, all the rest. But it's the emotional attachment stuff. And a lot of people feel that partnership working, even the members of partnerships, the way of working is done to them rather than done with them. Yeah. I'm just a bit of a guiding light. I just show people a different approach in different ways. 
and yeah. allow them to it's step into what they want it yeah, to be. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's my three big learning points and fighting for airtime, of course, getting people to realize there are different ways of doing things. It doesn't always have to be the status quo. Yeah. Henry, thank you so much. I've learned a lot from this conversation and big things that I'm getting out is that importance of structure, the engine room and that nudging and actually just the groundwork that's required. I've got lots of questions I could keep asking you about that emotional oh, attachment to the partnership. But I, I, no, I think, I think we've covered enough for today. Maybe, I, maybe I we'll... I'm always happy to do it all of these. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it is very, very difficult is because I've seen it on both sides. I've seen it as a salaried council employee yeah. to work and I've seen it as a consultant and I would suggest, yeah, it's easier to do as a consultant than it is as a salaried employee. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're counseling to your own organization as well as trying to work with your partners. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, Henry, I do have one thing I want to ask you. What have you learned about partnership working in a virtual locked down world? How's that gone for you? You I hate hate it. it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know when it makes you jealous, but I've actually got recently done a couple of sort of real face-to-face people in a room workshops and it's been absolutely fantastic. I think we've lost the the interaction. When you you do a Zoom partnership meeting and you've got 20 faces to a screen, one person is not the same. Is the cut and thrust and the live debates very difficult to pick up those non-verbal cues and the body language and all the rest of it. There are people certainly here in the UK saying, "Oh, we can carry on like this." Many of the partnerships I work with and my blogs and university encourage people to say, "You need to get back and meet face to face again," because mm. it's all about relationship building. Mm. Uh, in an organisational context, say you work for a council, isn't it? as an example, you know where you are in the organisation, you know your team, you know your structure, you know your hierarchy. You can work remotely, you can do Teams and Zoom and all this mm. because you know the rules of the game. Yeah. In a partnership context, it's slightly different, yeah, because it's, it's all about human beings and dynamics and all this to me. One thing I did want to see, though, very quickly, and this is another huge subject, is there is something about how different parties have come together during the pandemic and done stuff so rapidly. Yeah. With such great agility. Almost like, Forget the rules, forget the bureaucracy, forget this, forget that, forget actually that she doesn't really trust you. We're going to work together to help our communities or whatever. Yeah, it's been the and same I'm, here as well. Issues yeah. that, that homelessness has been one here locally where yes. yeah, the yeah. first lockdown, oof, suddenly everybody got together and figured that out. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm wondering whether there is something, because we've had over here and probably same over there, the heavy use of military language here. Yeah. The war against COVID, the yeah, battle yeah. and civilization. But if I could take the really good partnership working lessons from COVID, mm. bottle it, I think I could make a fortune selling it. Because <laughs> we're slightly here, is we'll default back to how it was mm. pre COVID. But I would like to think with a bit of agitation, nudging by people like me, mm. you know, you can say, well, actually, you can't go back to how it was. We need a. Yeah. Newer way of a more agile way of working, but still with that degree of structural organization and discipline involved. Yeah. Hey, great thoughts, Henry. And I definitely hear you on the, the challenges of virtual meetings and you need to be able to connect with people as people. And I wonder if it's an and, and situation rather than an, and than an either or. So when you do meet in person, you put real energy and time into the connection piece. And then you can use those virtual meetings maybe for more sort of check-in type 
meetings rather than doing that every time? It's having the ability to talk to those senior leaders in a way that gets them to open up. And in a lot of cases, I've certainly found that nobody will submit they're not good at punishing work. <laughs> it's a bit like saying nobody admits to being a bad car driver. Yeah. yeah. Nobody sticks on the hands of you. Well, I'm not a good car driver. <laughs> nobody can sit around the table and say, you know what, I'm not really good at punishing working. Or very rarely when someone say to a group of buns, I think we need to get yeah. some extended facilitation to help us. Because mm. that could be perceived as a sign of weakness. Mm. So then it's actually having those one-to-one -one conversations with, with those, those senior people, opening their eyes up to actually, you may be frustrated with this, but there is a better way. Yeah. And then getting them to say to their partners, I think, you know, we got a little bit rusty, a little bit stale. I mean, I yeah. think, yeah, we actually, let's bring someone who just, just give us a bit of a reboot. Yeah. yeah. And through that subtle reboot, you can mm. just cheap on love. But it's getting people to take the time out because the problem is who owns the partnership? Who loves it? Who actually cares about how it is functioning? Because mm. as I say, all you bunch on the table, they'll come in every month and whatever, but then they bomb us back to their old organizations. Mm. So unless you've got a good engine room, you're going really strong. Yeah. Hey, Henry, so Hi, good to talk with you. What's the best place for people to learn more about what you've covered today? Oh, you can visit my, my website, www.collaborative-impact.uk. Perfect. And find out a bit what I do, but by the sounds of it, the challenges we face here in the UK, publishing work, is exactly the same you finished. Yep. you got to have over there. <laughs> Very sure. similar. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, but anytime you want me to come over, Paul, I'd love to come over. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> we'll just figure out this COVID thing, Henry. And yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> we have to get you somewhere better than Papakura Camp. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beyond Consultation podcast. What did you learn from the show? What should we have talked about? Who else should I interview? I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz slash podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nga mihi mo te whakarongo.